Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. So Yasmin, I had mentioned to you last week that I got a bunch of hormone testing done and I just got my results back, which I'm excited to kind of talk about a little bit yeah. in this intro today. And I had been feeling a little bit like after I had my baby that my hormones were a bit wonky. My period was a little bit off. Um, and so much can happen after you have a baby with your hormones, especially you know, with your thyroid and with your cycle. And I've been doing BS seed cycling, which has been helping a lot, but still I kind of fell off and I wanted to get my hormones checked out and I got my results and it's kind of exciting. I think in the past I used to have a lot of health anxiety of like, what does this all mean? Mm -hmm. But now I kind of look at it like a detective and it's kind of cool to see what's going on in my body. So it was really interesting. Actually, everything looked pretty good, which was, um, which I attribute to all the things that we get to do at BIA. But there were two things yeah. in particular that kind of explain what's been going on, especially with my cycle and with my energy levels. So we talk a lot about cortisol on this podcast, our stress hormone. My cortisol is like tanked. Uh, by the late afternoon and evening. Really? So yeah, I have like, which explains why, you know, evening comes around and I just, I can't even do anything. Anthony's like, let's watch a movie. Let's do this. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I just want to pass out. I just want to lay on the couch. Um, so my cortisol is pretty low. Um, and my estrogen, which has always been the case and runs in my family is a little high. So mm-hmm. it's, it's good to see these things and see how we can work on them, especially when you're feeling like something something's up and then you get a marker that's like, maybe this explains what's going on. Yeah. And I'm curious, can you share with us what test you did? Because we get so many women that reach out that they're like, my doctor's not going to check my hormones. What are different options I can try? So what did you use to kind of check everything that you're walking through? So the best test for hormonal health is the Dutch test. There's a 21-day Dutch test, which is very comprehensive. The challenge is that it's not often covered by insurance and you do want to work with a practitioner because it's it's pretty challenging to read and to understand yeah. what the results are. There are some other really good tests. You can go to your doctor and if they'll play ball with you, you can ask them for the right tests, especially when it comes to thyroid. They're not always looking at the correct tests, but you know some doctors are willing, especially if you explain that something feels off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually Everly Well has a good women's hormone test. They test saliva and they test blood, um, and it tests it tests cortisol, estrogen, testosterone, DHEAS, progesterone, and a few other things: FSH, LH, things that are important to know. So, and that one's pretty affordable, and the results are pretty easy to read. So, there's a few different options. I love that. No, that's good to know. And so now that you've kind of seen that your estrogen's a little bit higher and your cortisol is kind of tanking throughout the day, what are some things that you're looking to implement now that you kind of have that data with you? Yeah. So with cortisol, it's, you know, stress management and resetting your circadian rhythms is always key. Doing all the things that we know we're supposed to do, but a lot of us don't get to do them. (laughs) No scrolling at nighttime, getting morning sun, spending time outside, like all of those really important lifestyle habits that are so straightforward, but 
kind of hard to implement. And then as far as estrogen, you know, estrogen dominance has, again, been part of my family. I've seen it happen with a few family members of mine. And with estrogen dominance, gut health is so important. I know a lot of people have signs of estrogen dominance. Maybe you have heavy periods, breast tenderness, um, PMS. Those can all be signs of estrogen dominance. And so your gut health is so important because your gut is what helps to clear out excess unwanted Mm. estrogen and balance your estrogen. So I'm really excited about today's episode because we're talking all about gut health and everything that Mary's going to be talking about are things that I'm going to implement. So it's going to be a super awesome episode. Yeah. So in this week's episode, we're joined by our friend, Dr. Mary Party. Dr. Party is a naturopathic medical doctor and a certified functional medicine doctor who specializes in integrative gastroenterology and hormone balancing here in LA. She's a founder of Modern Med, a telemedicine and virtual wellness company that provides medical and health services to clients from the comfort of their homes. And for those who cannot see her one-on-one, Dr. Mary created a course that dives into the most common gut-related complaints and natural solutions to start healing. And we'll include all those details in our show notes. So let's get into this week's episode. I want to talk about the difference between regular bloating and a dysbiotic gut bloating because I feel like most women, I know I experience some sort of bloating every single day, but I know when there's just like, okay, I'm a little bit bloated, I ate something versus like something's up down there. So is bloating normal? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. And I deal with this every day. So we talk about it every day in our practice. And some degree of bloating is normal. And I think it's really important that we do normalize that and then also talk about like what is normal and what's not normal because there's definitely abnormal bloating as well. What I consider to be normal bloating would be if you eat a meal and let's just say that there was this much food in the meal, like a softball size, right? So if you consume that volume of food, that volume has to go somewhere in your stomach. And so it's going to displace that much volume of space in your stomach in addition to the amount of gas that's also produced just from normal digestion. So when you break down proteins and fats and things, you're going to have gas produced as a byproduct of the digestive process, which is also normal. Um, So you're actually going to have a little bit more volume than the actual volume of food that was consumed. That's totally normal. And what that should feel like is your stomach kind of pushes out a little bit. You can even see it in the mirror right after eating up to an hour, maybe even two hours after eating, and then it should be gone. So really within an hour of eating, you should notice that dissipate because what happens is your stomach starts to empty after it digests and then it goes into the small intestines. But what's happening is that the contents of the food are spreading out over a much bigger surface area. So you're kind of not noticing it. It's no longer a ball. It's now like dispersed throughout the intestines and a larger um, area of space. Um, so that's that's what I consider normal bloating. So that's just like you're, you feel a little bit after lunch goes down, a little after dinner goes down, but it's not cumulative. So it's not like you wake up with a flat stomach, you have breakfast, it gets worse, doesn't get better, lunch gets even worse, then you have dinner, it gets worse. And by nighttime, you're like nine months pregnant and you're you're just feeling like that distension that's much worse at night versus in the morning. That is considered abnormal there. 
Um, so those are kind of like the, the, the differences in that. And one of the big things that I will ask people is, does it interfere with your quality of life? And, and that's a big giveaway right there. When they say yes, then it's usually abnormal. But sometimes people become really fixated on normal bloating and they just want to have a flat stomach all day long, in which case we're really talking about like the psychology behind that and normalizing just normal human functions. Absolutely. And I feel like it's just kind of as a mom so important because that flat stomach thing is just out the window at a certain point in life. Um, and I think the the psychological component is so important too because the fixation around having a flat stomach, like sometimes there's a reason there's not a flat stomach and that's okay. And that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you're saying for normal bloating, like when you eat, like I notice I'm bloated, my stomach is a little out and it's just like part of the human digestive process. And I love that. And I'm curious, you you know, you talked about what abnormal bloating looks like, what are maybe some of the causes that can kind of ha push someone to have more of, of an abnormal bloating situation? Yeah, there's, there's so many causes. Um, the most common ones that we see, I mean, stress is going to be the most common cause of, of most things where if we're eating too quickly and we're not taking in our food, we're not smelling it, we're not chewing it, then we're not making the digestive enzymes, the stomach acid that we need to properly digest our food. Um, and so you may notice more bloating if that's the case. And that's probably the most common one that we see. Um, but there's a lot of other things too. So there's some increase in bacterial fermentation that can happen when you have higher amounts of hydrogen or methane producing bacteria or archaea in the intestines. And so we all know we have all of these microbes in the intestinal tract. Most of them um, should be in the large intestines, but we do have some in the small intestines as well. And we can get an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine as well as the large intestine. And then if you have more bacteria, they're going to produce more gases. And so that's where the abnormal um, gas production can come from when that's a case. So that's usually when we're talking about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or intestinal methanogen overgrowth as well. Um, it's really due to an overgrowth of normal bacteria. So you don't have an infection. It's not like there is a bacteria that shouldn't be there. There are guys that should be there, but they're in amounts that are higher than, than they should be. Um, there's also things that like celiac disease can cause bloating. It can also present as just bloating and constipation. You know, sometimes we think of it as a diarrhea predominant disease, but it's not always the case. So we're usually screening people for celiac disease. It's a less common cause, but definitely can be a factor there. Um, one of the ones I like to talk about is aerophasia. So aerophasia is the swallowing of air that can happen, and it's not a rare thing that happens. So it's a really common presentation of anxiety. Usually people that exhibit aerophasia will have some sort of underlying anxiety there. But swallowing of air, you can imagine, will create distension and bloating in the stomach because you're literally putting air right in there. Um, and we don't knowingly swallow air, of course, but it's happening when we're eating really fast or when we're drinking, or some people will actually be swallowing air even as they're talking. And it's almost a coping mechanism or a sign of anxiety that's present. And so if I suspect that's the case, then I'll actually have people take a drink of water with me or show them like how to eat with expelling the air before they swallow and really being mindful. It's something that you have to really slow down and try to look at. Um, but that's not an, uh, 
not a rare cause either. It's, it's actually quite common that we don't talk about that often. Wow, that's so interesting. And I think, you know, we can get deeper into, is there some sort of overgrowth happening? But let's go back to just the stress component, the anxiety component and eating too quickly. Because I think those are some of the basics that a lot of people don't have covered. And then sometimes they're like, I have SIBO, I have fungal overgrowth, I know something's going on, but it's like, let's go back and like just cover the basics. So what are some basic things we can do every day to improve our digestion? Yeah, and I think that's so important. That's where we start with people. It's like, if, if these don't improve your symptoms, then we'll look at things more in depth. Um, but in a big percentage of people, you can start to do this at home as well. Um, so, so for most people to improve digestion, slowing down, practicing the mindful eating, I'll have people start with taking four deep breaths or do a box breath where they're counting for four and inhale, hold it for four, four and an exhale, hold it at the bottom for four and repeat that four times just to get yourself in a mindful place before you start eating. And then a big cue is don't start eating until you salivate. So if you don't have saliva in your mouth yet, then keep breathing, keep looking at your food, keep smelling it, wait for that saliva to increase. And that's a cue that you're now going into more of the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest part of your autonomic nervous system, which is where you digest your food. Um, another one is going to be to try to eat um, your meals separate from all of your liquids, and especially if you're experiencing bloating, to not put those two together because it's just going to increase the volume that's in your stomach at once and be more uncomfortable. So, you know, we want to have people drinking plenty of fluids throughout the day, but you can do it outside of your meal time. So between meals instead of with meals. Um, also, avoiding carbonated beverages. And that includes kombucha, includes like all of the health beverages that are carbonated, um, but it's another form of swallowing air. So if you are drinking bubbles, it's going to contribute to gas and bloating. Um, and it's a tough one because I know I love seltzer and all those things. But um, if you're, if you have bloating, if you don't have bloating, great, like you can do whatever you want. It's not that they're bad for you. Um, another big one is walking. So walking is one of my favorites to just get people into that parasympathetic tone. But we also know that people with bloating um, who also deal with constipation are more likely to experience a relief in their symptoms when they fix the constipation part of it. So if somebody comes in with bloating and constipation, I'm like, my number one goal right now is just to get you going to the bathroom every single day, at least once a day, um, because that may just fix the bloating in and of itself. And one of the best ways to do that is to either make sure you're eating regularly. So we'll have people make sure they're having normal meals throughout the day to stimulate the gastrocolonic reflex. When you have food in the stomach, it makes your colon move to have a bowel movement. And so just eating regularly when you're constipated can help resolve constipation. But another thing is walking. So um, we know that regular walking can help stimulate the gastrocolonic reflex just to get things moving in the GI tract for normal bowel movements, which is really, really helpful. Um, a clinical pearl that I have is that if I have somebody with constipation, um, I'll always ask them, hey, do you have access to a treadmill? And if you, this is, and this is nowhere in the research at all. It's just because I've dealt with so many people with constipation that I found it to be really, really helpful. But there's something about walking on a treadmill that your brain knows that you are near a bathroom versus if you go out for like a 10 mile hike, your brain knows that there's no bathroom. We shouldn't 
want to go to the bathroom, hopefully, on this hike. But when your brain knows, like, I'm in the gym or I'm in my apartment complex or I'm right next door to the bathroom, and then you also have that movement that's helping to stimulate the colon, um, then you're more likely to have that urge to, to go to the bathroom, which can be a huge game changer. So people with, like, just, like, a lack of urge to go to the bathroom, I'm like, get on the treadmill first thing in the morning and see if that helps make that urge come about naturally. I wonder if that works for the uh, people who are on vacation who can't poop. Yeah, I was those people. About that. <laughs> well, I will say I'm one of them and it works for me. If I'm at a hotel and it has a treadmill, I'm like, I'm going to get on that thing first thing in the morning. It absolutely helps. Um, anything that's routine. So if you're somebody that gets travel related constipation, you want to have like the most routine morning you can because you're trying to trick your brain into thinking that you're home. Because uh, that's really the only difference is that your brain knows that you're not home and it doesn't feel comfortable to go to the bathroom. So that's why I have people create a daily practice where they do the same thing every morning. They wake up, they drink eight ounces of warm water with lemon or like their tea. Um, they go for a walk on the treadmill. They do their breath work or we might do like gut directed hypnotherapy at that time, their meditation. Um, and, and then they try to have a bowel movement too. So sometimes we'll actually have them sit on the toilet and even if they don't have the urge to go. But you want to put that routine in place. And if you're traveling, do the same exact thing. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. What is considered normal bowel movement? I feel like, yeah, I'd be curious to get your thoughts around that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's a few aspects that we want to look at. One is the consistency of the stool. So what does the stool look like? I usually refer to the Bristol stool chart for this. And you can Google that Bristol stool chart. It'll come up with a million different options. Um, and really what we're looking at for a normal stool is between like a three and a five on the Bristol stool chart with the four being like the gold standard. Um, but I always have to note on these podcasts, because then I'll have people come in. They're like, I listen to your, all your podcasts. And like, I'm not having a four on the Bristol stool chart every single day. Like sometimes it's a three and then like one day out of the week, it's a five. I'm like, that's still normal. Like you're totally good. Your, your stools aren't going to look exactly the same each time you have them. Like that would be weirder than having abnormal stools. Um, so we're not machines. There's going to be some variation, but you want them around like that three to the five range majority of the time with the four being the gold standard. And what the four looks like for those of you who aren't going to Google it, it, it looks like a snake. So it's a solid log shaped kind of curved. Um, it's smooth. So it doesn't have a bunch of cracks in it because it's not really hard and dehydrated because you're not constipated, um, but it doesn't fall apart into pieces either. So it's solid enough that it maintains its shape. 
And so that's kind of where we, we gauge. If you're really, really constipated, you'll have a type one on the Bristol stool chart, which are like little rabbit pellet poops are very, very hard. Um, they're, and that's because they are dehydrated. There's not enough water in the stool because it's moving so slowly through the colon. All the water is getting absorbed. Um, versus the other side is a type seven where someone has water stools and things are moving much too quickly. They're having diarrhea. And so that would be abnormal as well. Um, other things that are normal is the color of the stool. So brown is always normal for stool color, but it can be green. If you have like a lot of green drinks, then it's normal to have green stools that will come and go as well. Um, yellow stools are typically not normal. We want to look at fat, fat maldigestion when they're yellow. Um, same with white stools can happen. They almost look like a clay colored stool and that can signify something's going on with the gallbladder. Um, I just posted about this the other day, but your stool is brown because you produce bilirubin, um, which is when your red blood cells break down and that's released from the gallbladder. It makes the stools brown. So that should be happening. And then red can be normal if you're having a lot of beets in your food. What are the other ones? There's some other ones that cause red stools too. Beets is like the most common. Yeah, I think there's one other. Oh, if you have a lot of red peppers, the skins of the red peppers can show up in the stool, which is also normal because we don't really digest the skins of red peppers. Um, but otherwise, red stool, you want to rule out blood, which is never normal. So one of the things to go to the doctor for is if you have blood in the stool at all, it's never a normal cause. Um, most commonly will be caused by like a hemorrhoid or a fissure, which will, they'll see on examination and then they'll just treat that. But you always want to make sure not something deeper is not going on with that. And then the other thing with digestion to see like, are you normal or not, is like how much gas you're producing. It's normal to produce gas. So if you look at any other animal out there, like we never think anything when the dog farts or the cat or the horse or, and we're, we're the same. So unfortunately it's totally normal to pass gas up to 20 times per day as a human. And um, you don't need to count how many times you fart, but if it feels like much, much more than that, then that may be something that's abnormal. I think there's the obvious signs of improper or something going on with your digestion, which is like, I'm constantly bloated, I'm not pooping, or I have diarrhea, but there's some not so obvious signs that could be related to our digestion. What are some things that are going on in the body that could be like, okay, maybe something's off with my digestion? And specifically, I'd like to talk about it as it relates to hormonal health. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so all of your systems are connected, right? So our endocrine system, our gastrointestinal system, they all have some connection that are at play there. But, you know, one of the bigger ones that I think of, and we'll, go, we'll get into sex hormones as well, of course, but from hormones, the thyroid hormone really dictates a lot of the function of the GI tract. And so when somebody comes in with constipation or bloating, we're ruling out a thyroid condition from the get-go because that could be causing the symptoms. You have thyroid receptors on virtually every cell of your body, and that includes the intestines. And so in order for the intestines to move properly, you have to have proper thyroid production. Um, so that's one, that's like a big integration right there that we want to look at. Um, in terms of sex hormones, there, there's an interplay. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, Yasmin, where we talked about how, you know, things like high progesterone levels in your luteal phase will cause constipation, which is totally normal and can, we can do things for that as well. Um, but on the flip side, your, 
your intestinal tract is where we detoxify certain things. So you have your liver, which is this huge organ. Um, it can be up to like three pounds. It's really large. Um, and, and it's that it's the hub for metabolism, but also how we break things down and get them out of the body. And so one of the things that we will break down and excrete are estrogens. So you will um, metabolize your estrogens and excrete them through the liver into the gallbladder, through the bile duct and into the intestines that way. Um, and you want to make sure that that's happening. So just having regular bowel movements is one way that we are, you know, in, in some way, whether it's upstream, you know, it's a little downstream is um, getting rid of of hormones in the body through a natural process that, that happens every single day. One thing that comes to mind, it's so interesting. We've had so many women reach out to us on BIA because with the seeds, it's so high in fiber. And there's women that are like, I thought I had IBS. I'm taking these seeds and I'm literally going to the I'm going to the restroom every day consistently. And I feel so much better and their hormones feel better. Their PMS for these specific women I've talked to, of course, for everyone, it's different. So it just shows like having bowel movements and that detoxification process is so it's also critical to hormones, which I just find fascinating there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Most of us aren't eating enough fiber. Um, and I actually had a patient the other day that was that was using Bia and she said similar things. And I was like, it's, it's so awesome that you guys are putting out a product that's so needed for so many different reasons. We just need more fiber and nutrients in our diet. And those seeds are so full of them. Um, but, but it is a way that we're, we're able to, to help our body excrete naturally is just increasing fiber content. Um, and so I, we'll probably talk about this, but like things not to do for your gut. In my mind, the carnivore diet is like on that list. If we're looking at gut health, it, it's one of those things where you're taking all of the good fibers out or most of the good fiber out of your diet and you're not getting that effect from it amongst like all the other amazing effects that fiber has, reducing the risk for colon cancer, many, many other cancers, um, keeping you regular. And when you're not constipated, it, you feel way better energy-wise as well as just feeling lighter. Um, and then also the, the improvements with you know metabolism that we see in terms of reducing hunger cravings when you have enough volume and fiber in your diet as well. I want to talk about that a little bit, actually, Mary, the carnivore diet, because I think a lot of people are on this diet for a long time and they feel that my body cannot handle vegetables, my body cannot handle a lot of fiber, and I just feel better on a carnivore type of diet or eating very low fiber. In my mind, I'm like, okay, you should be able to get to the point where you can, you, you, you work on your body so that you can tolerate those things. So can you talk about that? Like, how do you work with your patients to get them to be able to tolerate more vegetables, more fiber? Because a lot of people, they start to eat this stuff and then they feel like my digestion just feels worse. I feel bloated all the time. Like I just don't feel right. I'm nauseous, whatever it is. So they kind of think they're doing the wrong thing, but actually it requires probably some gut healing at that point. Yeah, I totally agree, Kaya. I think that um, I think that they're just avoiding the trigger that's there, but it doesn't mean that the trigger is a bad thing for everybody. So there's a difference there with somebody who doesn't digest certain fibers correctly. 
um, and and identifying what that is for that person and maybe avoiding a few foods because of that, but not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is happening with the carnivore diet in my mind. And I've had many, many people come to see me on the carnivore diet and say, I can't reintroduce any vegetables or I get bloated. And that's really where we want to say, okay, I acknowledge that and I believe that that's true for you, um, but we have to find a solution to it because it's undeniable that we should be consuming fiber as humans if we want to like live longer, healthier lives. Of course, we don't have to to survive. It's not a macronutrient that we need to, you know, to live right now like calories are, but um, to live a long, healthy life, fiber has such good research for it. So we want to then identify like what's going on. Most of those people, you know, a big percentage will have irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, in which case um, high FODMAP foods can definitely be contributing to the discomfort and the bloating. And we want to identify which of those FODMAP groups is an issue there. So in our practice, we started using a device called Food Marble, which is like a at-home um, device where you're able to measure your hydrogen and methane levels. But one thing that I like about it is they now pre they, they give out these packets where there's a packet of lactose, um, fructose, sorbitol, inulin, which are the big major FODMAPs. Um, they don't give you the one that's in beans and legumes because they basically say everybody's going to react to that. Like beans and legumes just make humans gassy. Um, but all the other ones, you can go through challenge tests to see, okay, is it inulin that's bothering me? Or is it sorbitol? Or is it fructose? Or is it lactose? And you can see your results. And if it's just one of those groups, then you can just eliminate that one group. And that way you can still have a really diverse diet, but you're not getting the symptoms um, of the bloating and the gas that are uncomfortable there. That's the, that's the idea of it. And that's where we're, we're using it in our practice. What you don't want to do is you get the device and you're, you're high in all of them. And then you're just on a low FODMAP diet the rest of your life. That's not the solution. So you want to keep digging there and, and definitely talk to your doctor about doing a SIBO lactulose breath test and seeing what you can do to minimize those symptoms, but be able to reintroduce those foods in your diet. Um, so we never will put somebody on a low FODMAP diet for the rest of their life. It should be for, you know, six weeks, maybe eight weeks, and then you're reintroducing. Um, and that's on the longer side. Wow. That's super cool. It's called Marble. It's called a Food Marble. Yeah, Food Marble is the company. The device is called the Air 2. It's the one that we use because it does hydrogen and methane in it. And you can purchase it online um, on your own. Uh, you don't need a doctor's order. You do need a doctor's prescription for the lactulose if you want to do an at-home breath test with it, though. You know, I want to zoom out, uh, Mary, actually, and get your thoughts on maybe what are some things that we're all doing daily that might be harming our gut health and we might not realize it's doing that. Yeah, there's some big ones. Um, the most common ones that I see are going to be alcohol. So alcohol is a direct irritant to the GI tract. Um, you know, like whenever, if you get a cut or something, like putting rubbing alcohol on an open wound would be so, so painful. And similarly, if you're drinking alcohol and if you have any like irritation, gastritis in the stomach or ulcer, you know, heaven forbid, like Alcohol is just going to exacerbate any inflammation that's already there um, and can be the source of causing inflammation as well. Um, so that's an easy one where there's no benefit that I see to the GI tract or to any other organ system with alcohol. 
Um, and then another big one is going to be the overuse of antibiotics. And, and it's really important that we say overuse there because antibiotics are life-saving. We use them when we need them, of course. Um, they've changed the course of medicine at large. Um, but the overprescription of them and using them when we don't necessarily need them, um, it has a real detrimental effect to the GI tract because it disrupts the gut microbiome. So that diversity of different bacteria, fungi, viruses, protozoa in the intestines that creates this ecosystem that communicates with virtually every single other system in our body. We wanna have diversity there. And we know that the overuse of antibiotics reduces diversity that's present. Um, so that's a, that's a big one. And we're just talking about like not prescribing or using antibiotics for viral infections. Like antibiotics do not treat viruses, they treat bacterial infections. And it's really common that you see them prescribed for viral infections that we could probably wait another week to see if it self-resolves with just supportive care, hydration and sleep and all that stuff. Um, that's a huge one. The other ones are going to be NSAIDs, so non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatories, things like um, ibuprofen that we take for headaches, migraines, menstrual cramps. Um, those are going to be direct irritants to the, the stomach lining and can cause ulcers or gastritis as well. And again, it's overuse. If you take it once a month, I don't expect that to be any issue at all, but it's when you're using it on a daily basis for chronic pain or something like that, that we want to find a different option that won't be so irritating to the GI tract. Another big one is going to be um, eating the standard American diet that's low in fiber. So we kind of already talked about it, but just not consuming enough fiber fiber in the diet, your microbes consume different things in order to survive. So we have a symbiotic relationship with them. We provide them with a home and we provide them with food and they provide us with anti-inflammatory compounds, um, compounds that actually produce energy in our colon cells or colonocytes. Um, and so fiber is one of the big food sources for those microbes. So you want to provide a diverse amount of different types of fibers. Also polyphenols will support the gut microbiome. Those are going to be found in fruits and vegetables, um, different colors of the rainbow. That's why that's so important is all the colors of different fruits and vegetables symbolize what um, antioxidants and polyphenols are in those vegetables. And so those are the, the food sources for those microbes as well. Can you talk about how you incorporate food diversity into your daily diet? Because I think it sounds really nice, but sometimes it can be challenging, especially for like young, busy, modern women. So I'd love to hear how you're inc incorporating all of these different colorful foods into your diet. Yeah. Yeah. When I first heard about it, I was like, are we talking to children here? Like, why do we, why do we eat with the rainbow? Like that seems so silly and, and juvenile. Um, first of all, it is beautiful when you look at your plate and it's like, wow, look at like the, the beets and all that. Um, but the way I do it practically is I go to the farmer's market and I know that's not accessible to everybody, but um, for me, it's it could be the grocery store. It could be anything where you're choosing something that you haven't tried before each week, ideally. Um, and so, you know, I'll go and I'll look and be like, oh, I haven't had kohlrabi in a while. Like, let me pick that up. Or like, what is this vegetable? And I'll ask the farmer and he'll tell me and tell me how to prepare it. And I'll, and I'll add that into the diet. Um, but I really try to just diversify whenever I can and not 
to get in the habit of eating the same thing every single day, which, which can happen. And there's also like a time and a place to do this, right? Where if you're eating the same thing every day because you just had a baby and you just need to get food into your system and it's healthy food, then great. Um, this is just like one additional step that if you feel like you have the time to incorporate can, can be really helpful for the diversity. So different bugs like different foods. So if we incorporate a whole bunch of diverse vegetables, then we're also feeding our, our microbes different things. Um, and then I'll try to make sure that I'm eating like 20 to 40 different vegetables every single week. And I eyeball that. So I'm not writing anything down. I'm just saying, you know, one day if I'm having like peaches, then I'll try to have an orange the next day and just try to keep things new and fresh, which also helps me not getting bored with my food. Man, I'm doing it all wrong. I eat the same thing every day, you know, but I, I'm actually inspired now because even our last interview we did, gosh, I can't remember when that was a year ago. I'm like, I really should mix it up. It's only good for us. And um, I feel like I can easily just kind of stay and eat the same thing, you know, same few things every week. So I'm inspired. And I actually have something just kind of thinking about my routine and how I eat. What are your thoughts around people who drink coffee and it's a diuretic and that's like the daily bowel movement that they have? Yeah, so coffee stimulates the colon for sure. And especially if you're traveling and stuff, I'll, I'll use that personally to stimulate a bowel movement. So I use it as a tool. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily bad. We want to make sure that we're also addressing any underlying things that are going on, um, especially if there's anxiety. So if the coffee that is helping you go to the bathroom is also making you anxious, then it's clearly an issue. If it's not, then, you know, I may suggest like, what if we try magnesium and fiber just so you have alternatives and you don't have to rely on coffee? Um, or we may want to look at studies, right? So we're always working people up for constipation to see like, is there is there something going on with the pelvic floor muscles that are there? And you're going to just feel so much better regardless of whether you have a bowel movement or not, but just like feeling like you fully voided. Um, but I, I don't have a big issue with it, especially because so coffee, we know is, you know, it makes us pee more. However, it's more hydrating than it is dehydrating. So even though it has diuretic properties to it, you still get hydrated from drinking coffee. And that's to the last of my knowledge, at least when I looked at the research. So while it has diuretic properties, it's not making you dehydrated. And I know that we, we talk about that all the time. And it's like, um, oh, you shouldn't drink coffee because you're going to get dehydrated from it. It actually has overall hydrating effects. It just has less hydrating effects than, you know, water with electrolytes. Oh, that's good news for all the coffee lovers out there, myself included. I think it's kind of also placebo that the laxative effect, because I swear that Anthony, my husband, just smells coffee and he's like, he can just smell it and he'll like, oh, now I can go. And it's like, okay, that's kind of cool. There is a placebo effect that I believe happens, but I think it's the anticipatory nature of it where you, your brain knows that this makes you go to the bathroom. So I was, a, I was traveling the other weekend and I went and I got my coffee because I was like, I just need to make sure I have something um, in case I don't go. And I was in line waiting for my coffee and I was like, oh gosh, gotta go. Um, and it was 100, that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, if I wasn't at the coffee store, like actually getting the coffee. So there's definitely a psychological component to it for, for sure. Um, and we know that from traveling, right? Like nothing actually changes when we travel except for our thought process of where we are.
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of want to go back to actually your tips around constipation because there was something that you said that I think is a big barrier for a lot of people who do have constipation, which is unfortunately so many people. Um, but the idea that you need to eat, because I think a lot of people who are constipated feel like they can't eat. They just cannot add, they don't want to add more to what's already going on down there. They're going to feel overstuffed. But how do you help people get over that barrier? Because I feel the same thing. I tell my friends, I'm like, you actually need to eat like more to help with what's going on. But um, that feeling that they just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's big. And so I want to touch on two things. And one of them is under eating can actually be the cause for constipation. And I've seen that so many times where, you know, people come in and they're not eating enough calories. And if there's not a lot coming in, there's not going to be a lot coming out. So sometimes it's just increasing calories to actually resolve the constipation. And there's going to be a period of time of readjusting to that where you're, you may even feel worse, right? And you just have to trust the process that this is going to eventually help. With anorexia, one of the key symptoms is constipation. So many, most people with anorexia will suffer from constipation, bloating, GI distress. Um, and unfortunately, like it, you, not unfortunately, but you have to increase calories in order to get those symptoms to resolve. And usually there's a spike in symptoms before they get better, but they do get better is the, is the good part of it. Um, taking out like say, okay, I already eat enough calories though, but on the days that I'm constipated, I don't want to eat that much because I feel full and I don't want to, like you said, okay, like back things up, right? Like why would I add fuel to the fire there? And it's a really common mindset and I totally get it too because I've been there, but it's the opposite. So you want to keep eating your regular meals. Your body loves routine and this is true for most things that happen where it really wants the routine of knowing that when the next meal is coming, but also knowing the next size of the meal. So it's not just about eating normal, regular meals throughout the day, but also eating normal sized meals throughout the day. So, you know, some people will come in, they'll say, yeah, I don't really have that much for breakfast. I'll have like a little frittata or something. And then um, I'll have like a cup of soup for lunch. And then I have a big dinner. And if GI issues are, are at play, IBS or constipation, we really want to say, okay, you want to make those more normal. So you're having a you know, regular size breakfast, a regular size lunch, regular size dinner. So making dinner smaller and the other two meals larger um, because your digestive tract will respond better just to the regularity of it. And that's been proven. And people with IBS, we know that regular meals spaced regularly improve symptom outcome, even if it's constipation related. And it gets back to some of the physiology behind it is that gastrocolonic reflux. Like you actually need um, food in the stomach to make your colon move. Um, and so if you don't put anything in, then your colon may be like, oh, I don't need to move. I'm just going to hang out here and just worsen the constipation that's there. That's such great advice and also inspiring for building a routine. I swear like adults are just big toddlers because toddlers like need routine and that just doesn't change. We like we thrive on routine. So it's such good advice. Oh, yeah. I mean, routine is everything for sure. It's like they want to know what to all of us, all of us human beings, we want to know what to expect. It like helps us thrive in our situation. And if she can, if she doesn't have control, then forget about it. It's like meltdown city. So that just stays forever for life. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
I love it. And Mary, I actually want to go back to something you mentioned in the earlier part of our podcast where you were saying the number or a very common thing that impacts bloating in our gut is stress. And I want to talk about your perspective around how stress and just our overall mental health can really impact our gut health. Mm, it's a big one. It's a big one that I see every single day. Um, and so irritable bowel syndrome is so, so common. It's like, it's an easy example to use, but we'll also see people without IBS that'll have similar symptoms. Um, but I'll take IBS and we can talk about reflux a little bit too, because there's a big overlap there. With, with IBS, we know the pathophysiology is like a biopsychosocial model, which means that our biology, but also our psychology, which includes stress and everything that we go through is a precipitating factor for irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and so one of the common things I'm talking to patients that have bloating, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, which are common in IBS, is, is really about starting to separate their symptoms from what they think it's related to, which is typically when people come in, they'll say it's food related. So it's like, I know that there's one food or there's a couple foods that are causing my symptoms. Um, and they usually associate it less with the stress that's present. And so we want to start to correct what's going on in our brain to say it's actually likely more the stress related with IBS specifically than it is the food itself, with the exception of FODMAPs. And we always talk to them about a high FODMAP versus low FODMAP diet with their symptoms. But you take those away, the FODMAPs then um, we know that stress is a much bigger trigger and precipitating factor of IBS than is food or, or most other factors there. Um, and what happens is that you take you, you eat a meal and then you get symptoms after it. So of course you're like, well, it has to be the food. I just ate and now I have symptoms. And when you have symptoms, you get anxious. You're like, oh, not this again. Am I going to be able to find a bathroom? Or, you know, will I ever go to the bathroom again? Or I'm going to feel uncomfortable for the rest of the day, whatever the thoughts may be. And those thoughts actually increase the sensations that you're feeling because your brain is really smart and it wants to protect you. And it says, if I'm not feeling good, I should put all my attention on where I'm not feeling good to make sure I will notice any additional changes that are happening. So it increases the attention on those symptoms. And then what happens is the symptoms get worse. The more you focus on it, the worse it gets. So the symptoms get worse, then anxiety around the symptoms get worse. And then we start to be in the cycle, the IBS cycle, I call it. And we have to intervene somewhere. And the place that most people intervene is like, hey, I said, we stop eating. I'll just not eat because food is causing the issue. Or we change our food so that we're so restrictive. We're only eating a certain amount of foods. Um, and, and we're ignoring like the bigger thing, which is the stress cycle that's actually causing the cycle to continue. Um, and so that's it's a really common one that we want to intervene with and, and also correct the myths that are out there about it's, it's likely not that one food or that those two foods. It's likely the stress that's around eating itself. Um, and then aside from IBS, you know, something like reflux. So reflux or, or GERD or heartburn, whatever you want to call it, it can um, definitely be brought on by stress and anxiety. So I've had multiple, multiple cases of people eating, you know, a super clean diet. They're not eating any spicy foods. They're not eating any fatty foods. Um, and when we treat their anxiety, their reflux goes away. And so it's just 
you know, it's such a obvious one when, when you see it happen, but you know, when we're in it ourselves, sometimes we can be like, well, I was stressed six months ago, but now I'm not. And, and that's just like our baseline is so high that we're not noticing the subtleties of it there. What a gift, I think, for your patients to have you, Mary, because a lot of doctors are not willing to go that deep. And I'm actually going to get even deeper for a second. I want to hear your thoughts about it. Often we hear people say, oh, well, my grandmother had that. My grandfather had that. My mother had that. It ran in my family. Oh, you know, they had this issue, sometimes even digestive issues. They talk about how it runs in the family. Do you ever talk to the people that you work with about generational trauma and dealing with that and how maybe addressing those things can help with some of the issues they're dealing with? Yeah, such a good point, Kaya, is that when we say things are genetic, we have to really pull apart and say, is it truly genetic, meaning there's a gene for it, right? Or is it generational, which is what you're describing? And those are really different things because it's very common for things to run in families, but it may not necessarily be genetic. It may be, you know, it's nature versus nurture. So it may be the nurture part where you were raised by the same family. And so you have similar stressors and you have similar coping mechanisms to those stressors. Um, and we really see that influence, you know, people's lifestyle, food choices, you know, people came out and talked about, I forget who talked about it recently, like that obesity is mainly genetic was the comment. And it's like, well, we really got to pull that apart and say, is it really genetic or is there a genetic component? Of course, there's genetic components to a lot of things. Um, but is it the lifestyle and mental health and like all the other aspects to to that that are being passed down? And so to answer your question shortly, yes, the answer is absolutely. We'll talk about it. IBS, it's really common to run in families um, and maybe there is a genetic piece to it, but it's not a deterministic gene. There's no deterministic gene for IBS. There's no deterministic gene that we know of for reflux. Um, so while there may be, you know, little things here and there, we know that we can really help these things with lifestyle changes. Um, and if it was truly genetic, then there, the only thing that we could do would be, you know, change the genes, which we can't do. And I'm curious, Mary, you mentioned a few lifestyle changes. What are your maybe like top three that you've seen really impact and help the patients that you see? Ooh, top three lifestyle changes. Um, it's going to be different for every person. That's kind of the cop-out answer, so I don't have to give you a real one, but I'll think of real ones too. But it, it is really different for, per person because some people like hate meditation, but they're, they love breath work, you know? So, but to, to put that under an umbrella of just some sort of coping strategy for stress as it comes up in your life. Um, that's going to be one of the biggest ones. And that takes really a lot of time to develop and to understand how your body responds to things. Um, I've had people where they've had bloating for 20 years and they come and they just practice mindful eating and their symptoms are gone. Like amazing. Doesn't work for everybody like that. Like that would be great. But um, some sort of stress coping technique, I think, is really important to figure out what what it is for you. Um, and then and then also to be open minded that what you think may be causing your symptom may not be the cause for the symptom. So it's really hard to treat people that are so sure about what the thing is. Um, that's been a huge obstacle that I've seen in practice where it's like if you're so sure 
um, then it's going to be difficult to accept anything other than than what that that piece is. So the rigidity there and becoming more more flexible in mindset can be really helpful as well. Um, exercise is always on the top of my list for everything, but also GI issues is you have to be moving. Your body is made to move. And when you are sedentary, almost everything gets worse, including constipation, including bloating, including reflux. Um, you know, if you go out for a walk after a heavy meal and you come back, almost always will feel better, right? So we know that anecdotally, but um, you can extend that into other areas. and, And the more you exercise within reason, usually the better you're going to feel as well. Um, and then, you know, eating real foods and I eat packaged foods. Of course, I think there's some healthy packaged foods, but I think the body responds really well to, to easy to digest foods. And so, you know, just things that you can pick from a tree or, you know, whole lean proteins, things like that um, are are usually the best option there as well. And then to be kind to yourself, like if you're not feeling well, just to realize that it's going to end, you know, this too shall pass, Um, but to nurture yourself. So to have something warm and nourishing that day um, and to be gentle with the process. I love that. I think uh, we'll end with this one final question. It's a trend that I've been seeing on TikTok and it's super sensational, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, What are three things that you would never do as a doctor? Oh, wow. I like this. I don't have TikTok, (laughs) so I I rely on these things to tell me the trends. Um, Around gut health or anything? Around just total body health. Like These are three things like no way. The hard line, I'm not doing those things. I need to protect my body. Cool. Love it. Um, okay. So three things I would never do as a doctor. I can only do three. There's so many out there. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, one of them is going to be like add butter to my coffee. Like, no, thank you. I'm not doing that as a doctor. Um, I also like, that's me. Like I'm apoe positive. Um, and I have high cholesterol. So like, that would just be a dumb idea for me. Um, but I know others that would really tell me it's a good idea. So that would be, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Also have high cholesterol and ApoB in my family. So yeah, no butter, no, no heavy on the saturated fats. (laughs) No. Um, I'll add carnivore to that as well. I'm sorry, carnivore people. And I expect some wrath in return. Um, but yeah, that's on my list for sure. Um, what other, I want to, I want to find like good ones now. Um, this is so fun. (laughs) Okay. You know what another one is? And I'd like to, I'd like to hear what you ladies think about this, but acai bowls, like that's on my list of like almost like a fuck no. I don't Can I swear on this? I just did, but yeah. 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 It's like a big old sugar bowl right there. It's, it's dessert. Unless you're having it for dessert, right? Like, of course I eat anything for dessert. So I get that. But unless you're like really understanding that it's a dessert, some of the acai bowls have teaspoons on teaspoons. I think I looked one up. It was like 15 teaspoons of sugar in it. Um, so they're usually really high in calories not high in protein. It's it's just a dessert. So that's going to be for sure on my list. Um, colonics are like a maybe, honestly, where I've had them in the past where I've been super constipated and I've felt better. So I don't want to be a hypocrite there either. But 
really try to get people to go to the bathroom without them. Um, you know, it's really uncommon, but they can perforate the colon and things like that. So they're not huge on my list. And yeah, we want to get the bowels going naturally is the ideal thing. Um, and a juice cleanse I put on there too. So you could do it right, I guess, where you could do like all green juices, but a lot of the juice cleanses are just like a bunch of sugar in there. You're just drinking apple juice all day long. And if you're going to do like a fast for health reasons, I understand that almost more than a juice cleanse. Um, but we don't have another couple hours, but I want to know some of yours. What do you, what do you guys got? Well, first of all, Mary, that was really good. That was like quality. You know, a lot of the ones that I've been seeing are like, I wouldn't smoke. And it's like, okay, duh. Like those, you know, those are like the, the, the basic ones, but these were like next level. I honestly think if we put this clip on TikTok, it's going to blow up. By the way, you should just get on TikTok. Woohoo! TikTok star. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, Kaya, as a nutritionist, what are your three things that you would never do? I feel like hers would be interesting. Now, I mean, now I'm thinking because Mary got me thinking like a layer deeper. Um, well, I mean, just on the along the lines of the butter in the coffee. I went ape shit on coconut oil a few years ago, like the whole world did. And no, like I'm not going to use coconut oil like liberally anymore. I barely have it. But gosh, it changed my lipids like crazy. So I'm not on the coconut oil train. I know a lot of people are still on it, but I'm like, no. And there's a lot about the way that different microbiomes handle saturated fat. So it's like there's so much uniqueness in our bodies that we can't just say like one thing, one blanket thing is good for anyone other than like water and vegetables probably. But um, yeah, this is now I'm thinking for sure. Yasmin, anything on your that you're thinking? Yeah. One thing that pains me because for me, it was like a blood sugar bomb is oat milk. And when I'm at a coffee shop and someone's like an oat milk cappuccino, and I know there's so many pe right pesticides in oats on top of that, I'm like, no, don't do it. But that just came to mind when you guys were talking. I know. It's really hard to, I, I always kind of want to tell people like, don't have oat milk anymore. But I feel like people love it. And I don't want to take that away from them. But it's hard to watch people have oat milk lattes all the time or have oatmeal with oat milk in it. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> Man, I love oatmeal so much, but it will throw my blood sugar up the wazoo. And it's such a bummer because it's so comforting to me to have it. But it doesn't help me with my focus and everything throughout the day. But by the way, there's a purely Elizabeth oatmeal with chia, flax, hemp, something else that uh, my team member experimented on. Everybody's different, but regular oatmeal, huge spike. This one, not so much, probably because all the additional fiber and things. So there's way to hack hack having oatmeal if you really love it. Yeah, I have my patients put sometimes their psyllium husk in a little bit of oatmeal because psyllium husk is kind of hard to, to take in. So I'm guessing that would be really blunting as well um, just because fiber. But. This was so fun. We, we have to do a whole episode on this in the future. Just things we will not do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Mary. It's always so nice to catch up with you and uh, people are going to love this conversation all about bloating. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me. Thank you, Mary.